Okay, if you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll just read part of this passage for now, beginning in verse 20. uh, We will read down through verse 25. The word of the Lord says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to this, said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In this teaching that is before us today, uh, the Lord describes for his disciples the end of the age. And we didn't read so much into that uh, yet, but what the Lord is going to go on to say is he's going to, he's going to show what the world's heart is right until the very end. And that the world does not change. The world will be the world. There will be people saved out of the world in which they will no longer be of it, even as we are not of it, though we are in it. But the world will persist in its idolatry, in its lust for the things of the world, right until the very end. Even in the face of the coming judgment, when judgment comes down, they will seek to defend this age and preserve it as much as they can. And because of that, when all of the world's gains are lost, they will forfeit their lives because they loved the things of the world to the end. This Christmas time, we are all buying and acquiring and and so on. As you buy and as you give and as you receive gifts and I love that part of Christmas. We do this because the Lord has given to us. We do these things to to show love and generosity to others as well. But as you buy and you give and you receive the things of this world, which are all temporal, do you keep that in mind? That they're temporal? That they're not going to last? I, I know it seems like just a a, uh, kind of a fundamental base lesson and truth that we should all know. But how easily are our hearts deceived by the lures of this world? Um, i got to tell on one of my little boys uh, from this past week. I think it was this past week or the week before. They they said to me, um, I don't want to go to heaven. And I said, why don't, why not? Because we can't take our toys. And, um, I thought, you know, uh, I, you know, I gave them an answer and, and so on, told them about Jesus and how heaven will be so much better than what we have here and, and so on, because Jesus is there and he makes all things good. But, um, I, I just thought that, you know, even though that sounds like a little child, that's, that's the world. And that's all of us. Uh, we resist Christ and, and putting our hope in, in Him and having Him as our first love because 
we naturally love the things of this world, which are all, you know, the things of this world, not speaking of that which is evil, but all that is good is from the hand of God, showing His generous heart and His beauty. But our hearts must not settle on these things, but on the one that gives them. I want to ask you a question before I move on. If your house would burn down tonight and everything would be lost, you survive, but everything else is lost, would you still have your first love? If you lost all the things of this world tonight, would you still have your first love? You know, the gains and the losses of this world have this power to control the life of an unbeliever. The the things of this world, the gains and the losses of this world, set the purposes and the hopes of the world, of unbelievers. And, And they have the power, when there is loss and when there is further gain, to reset their purposes and to reset their hopes. That's not the way it is with us. We are not so moved by the gains and the losses of this world, which is, you know, a classic example of this would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom we talked about in our Sunday school class classes this morning. That they were not going to be moved away from obedience and holding fast to the Lord, even if it would cost them their own lives. So by the gains and losses of this world, you know, our, should our mood, our feelings, our emotions so easily fluctuate by gain and loss of the things of this world? It's not that we are, you know, unmoved people, like there is this Christian temperament that is somehow above it all. We're just robotically even keeled, you know, stoic just kind of rather grim, emotionless, not moving one way or the other, not too high, not too low because of some... It's not that way for the Christian. It's not that when you are saved, your personality and your temperament changes. It doesn't become sanctified, but it's not like you get a a new personality, whereas, you know, once you were rather reserved around people, all of a sudden now you're bursting with energy and you're the life of the party. You know, it doesn't work that way. So we experience loss and we experience gain and we're moved by those things in the sense that we are affected. But it does not change where our hopes lie. And it does not affect what our first love is. Christ is all. And if we would lose everything else in this life, the things of this world, including those whom we love, not just the things we love, but those whom we love, we must still have our first love because we hold fast to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and the treasure of our souls. Nothing in this world is everything to us. Nothing in this world is everything to us because everything that is in this world will be nothing one day. Jesus Christ remains. He is the treasure that cannot be lost. So let us hold fast to Jesus. Let's get into this text. In the beginning, verse 20, it says that the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. 
Now, they have had, they may have had the very worst motive behind this question. Lord, when will the kingdom come? Teacher, when will it be? They may have had the worst motive, but this is in fact one of the best questions. The fulfill, the fulfillment of this, the coming of the kingdom of God is the great hope and longing of God's people. So really this is, um, whenever you see in the scriptures, the saints cry out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? This is really the question beneath that question. And even above it and all around it. It's, it's the ultimate. When will it be that the kingdom comes? Because we are not, no matter what we are going through, no matter what crisis in our lives, no matter what pain we are enduring, no matter what health issue we are experiencing, we are not looking merely for temporal relief. We're not longing for simply momentary victory. But we long for the promised King and His salvation to come to earth. The kingdom of heaven to come to earth. That's our longing. When will it be, Lord? How long? They may not have had it you know, the true longing in our hearts, but we should be glad that they asked the question, when will the kingdom of God come? As you can see from your text, and as you will find all throughout the Bible in every such text, Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say when it will be. We don't know. We won't know. We can't know. But the assumption of the Pharisees is that, and as, as you can see from Jesus' answer in the next couple of verses, their working assumption is that there are going to be observable signs to indicate the coming of the kingdom, the day of the Lord, where there will be judgment on the enemies of the Lord and salvation for God's people. They are expecting observable, tangible signs. But look at what Jesus says again. This is his answer to them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is vital information for you and me. I, I think especially as it applies to us because of the, um, if you want to use this, this term, the particular camp that we are in, in evangelicalism, conservative, Bible-believing evangelicalism, and even because of the history of this church, I think. Because there are many people um, of, of like stripe who obsess over signs. They, they are obsessed with looking for them. They love to talk about these observable signs. They're always ready for the, the latest headline. And so they talk about events and, and historical figures and movements that are going on. They repeat the statistics of moral societal decline and so on. But it's not signs that we are to look for. Jesus is very plain. We are not to look for these signs. As he says at the end of verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now I have three questions for this part of the text that deserve asking and we will do our best to answer. Number one is, how was the kingdom in their midst? 
The kingdom was in their midst because the king was in their midst. This particular saying of Jesus has been mishandled. In fact, it was mistranslated for a long time. But it has been mishandled for a a long time as people have thought that Jesus was actually saying the kingdom is within you. And you have to know that that can't be right. That that could not be what Jesus was saying as though he was saying the kingdom is in your heart. Don't look for signs in the world. The kingdom is inside of you. There's two uh, quick answers to that to, to shoot that interpretation down. Number one is look at who he is talking to. He is talking to the Pharisees. These religious leaders who will shortly lead the charge for the crucifixion of God's king. Would Jesus be saying to these individuals, known for their self-righteousness and hypocrisy, the kingdom is in your heart? Obviously not. And number two, not simply from the immediate context, from but from the whole scope of Scripture, we know that Well, not only would Jesus not say this to them, but he wouldn't say it because the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible does not talk this way about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is God's holy people in God's holy place under God's holy reign. You have all three elements and you can add with God's holy blessing onto that. You have all of those elements there. That is the kingdom. So the Bible doesn't talk about the kingdom coming into us. Yes, we do have God in us. We have the life of God in us. But it does not say, it does not talk like the kingdom comes into us, rather that we are called into the kingdom. And we come in. The kingdom doesn't come into us. We come into it. So think about Jesus Coming on the scene, here's the Messiah, God's Christ, and right from the beginning of his preaching, what does he proclaim? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So the kingdom arrives in the person of Jesus. And um, here's the third question. So first of all, we asked, how could it be that the kingdom is in their midst? It is in their midst because the king is in their midst. And the second question is, what is the kingdom? Here's our third question. If the kingdom comes in Jesus, why does he still teach us to pray to our Father in heaven, your kingdom come? If the kingdom comes in Christ, why does he, while he is there in the flesh, teach us to pray your kingdom come? And the answer to that is is this. Jesus' first coming is not His last coming. And Jesus' first coming is not His permanent coming. So He came and He won the kingdom and He won the crown by His life and by His death. He rose victorious over the grave and ascended to the Father in victory. And He is enthroned at the Father's right hand. He is the reigning King. His name is higher than every other name. He is Lord Overall, and he is coming again. He is coming again to consummate the kingdom that he first inaugurated 2,000 years ago. So when he came, it was the beginning, but not the final and 
fulfilled establishment. So when He comes, and He is here in the flesh again, then our longing and our prayer will at last be answered, Your kingdom come. This Christmas season, every Christmas season, what are we doing? We are concentrating particularly on the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we long for that day that is yet to be when Jesus will again come personally, physically in the flesh and the kingdom of heaven will be on earth. The Pharisees were looking for signs. So many people all around us, you may hear the talk, I hear a lot of it, they're looking for signs. What was their real problem? They couldn't recognize right in front of their eyes the Son, the Son of God. As we have already read in our service, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Listen, something that you and I must understand, it's simple. I I remember the very first time that I heard this in my seminary days, it was a huge light bulb going off. We are not to look for signs, but the sun. Not signs, but the Son. We are looking for Christ. Verses 22 and 23 again, And He said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. What Jesus is revealing to the disciples is the present age in which we live. It's it's this whole in-betweenness of the Christian life. We've talked about this a lot in the past, and Bill often told me how much he was helped by this terminology. We live in this state of already and not yet. Already we have so much from the hand of God in our salvation. Already we have been justified, redeemed, adopted into the family of God, but not yet have we been glorified. We have the the inauguration of the kingdom already, but not yet its final consummation. We already have God in us, but we do not yet see His face. And that is what we long for. It, you know, the, the Lord is with us. Don't misunderstand Jesus. Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us, but not in His flesh, not in the incarnate state. And that's what we long for. We haven't seen Him. We believe in Him, though we have not seen Him. But we long for that day. That's our hope. To see the glory of God in Jesus. And so during this time, there are going to be a lot of people who just, um, who are obsessed over the observable, tangible signs, you know. They might talk about some phenomena in history or in the cosmos or something like that, whatever. A lot of them are ready to to claim a sign of the kingdom at the drop of a hat. But we must not look for these. Don't be led astray by them and don't lead others astray in this. We are not looking for signs. We are looking for God's Son. 
and we are looking for Him in the flesh. Verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. So Christ's return to the earth will be like lightning that flashes across the entire sky. Not just some bolt in the distance that you're like, wow, that was, but something that stretches from, it will be like something that stretches from one end of the sky to the other. How will it be like lightning that flashes across the sky? First of all, unpredictable. Unpredictable for its time, its timing, and for its course how it will all be. Second, it will be undeniable. And that's what Jesus is talking about in something that takes up the sky. It will be undeniable. So massive and so visible and so spectacular that it will be unmistakable. All will see and all will know. There will be no mistaking the return of the King. How will we know that this day of the Son of Man, Jesus says, believe me, You'll know. You will know when it happens. Don't look for signs. Look for the sun. Verse 25, But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Shortly from this time, he is going to ascend to the throne of glory, victorious, with a name above all names. But what a path he must tread to get there. Dying the sinner's death and being buried in the sinner's grave. And he says, it must happen. He must suffer. We already saw earlier, Luke chapter 9, he set his face on Jerusalem. Nothing is going to dissuade him from the cross. Nothing will divert him from this path. He must suffer. And he will, for the love of God and for the love of sinner, Christ will suffer. Aren't you grateful that the first time he came, that's what he came for? To bring us salvation. To transfer these sinners who are captive to darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's why he came. First he must suffer before he takes the throne. Now it's the Pharisees who asked the original question, but uh, notice Again, in verse 22, it's he's talking to the disciples. It's those who believe in Christ. It's to them that he has so much to say. So now, uh, as we begin reading what we hadn't read earlier, what Jesus describes is how the world is going to be right until the very end. Where they're going to be invested, where their hopes lie and where they put all of their energy. So he says, beginning in verse 26, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The world, not believing in Christ, will obsessively conduct their business, their dealings, their 
acquisitions and all of that right until the end. They eat and they drink and they buy and sell and build, plant and build determined to the very end that this is not going to be the end. Determined that there won't be an end. Determined to keep this age at all costs. That's what they love. And they can't stand for the things of this world, the present form of this world, to pass away. How can they go on like this? I mean, and you get the clear picture from Jesus that in the end, when judgment comes at the return of the king, they will still be looking to hoard to themselves all of their acquisitions and to hang on to this age. How can they go on this way right to the end? And the answer is that because the world only has eyes for the world. They have, they don't have eyes for Jesus. He is not beautiful to them. He is repugnant to the world. The Christian message is repugnant to unbelievers. The Lord must change their hearts. That's how we would be. Uh, I mean, we would all be like the little child that says, I don't want to be with Jesus if I can't take my toys. I don't want to go to heaven if I can't have my things. If I can't have this world. Possessions possess them. Possessions possess them. This present age possesses them. It controls them. They are captive to it. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see the glory. They feel nothing whatsoever in their hearts that compels them to Jesus. That's why no one comes to the Father unless God first draws him. Their eyes are blind. And so as long as people are captive to the world and to love the things that are in the world, they cannot be captivated by Christ. They have no eyes to see. They have no appetite to savor Jesus and his love. Listen. What the Bible says to us believers, because we can fall back into that old way of thinking. Here's the warning of Scripture. Do not love the world. It's not talking about people, souls. It's talking about that whole world system where things, the visible, the tangible, is the be-all and the end-all. Going our own way, being our own boss. Do not love the world. Or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, 1 John 2, the love of the Father is not in him. And all of those whose first love is the world and the things that are in the world will be destroyed on the day of Jesus Christ. So Christ says, in beginning in verse 31, if you look there, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house that might be hard for who, who goes up to their roof. Well, first century Jews had the flat roof. They went up to the roof. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life 
will keep it. Those who are possessed by this age and by the love of it will lose their lives because they love the things of this world. They will forfeit themselves on the day when Christ comes. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. So let's do that. Let's remember, let's recall that situation. Sodom and Gomorrah have been consumed with evil. And God was determined that now was the time of judgment. Abraham prayed on behalf of the righteous. And the Lord promised that the righteous would be delivered from the city. So angels came and they warned Lot and his wife and his daughters and their husbands. Lot, in turn, gave the warning to his sons-in-law who thought that he was jesting. And so the angels said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. And this is what the Word says, Genesis 19. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? Do you think that she would have been destroyed by the Lord if she had looked back simply out of curiosity? She wasn't looking back because she wanted to learn the fate of the city. She was looking back because she longed for its survival. Because she longed for it. Her heart was there. That's where her life was. It was in that city. So looking back, she was destroyed. And her death is still speaking to you and to me. Warning us very strongly to not look back. Saved, we are not our own. We have been purchased by the Lord. Redeemed. Out of this world. Not to love it. And as those who have been Raised to life with Christ, made alive in Him, whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. The Bible charges us, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. If you feel like you must have the world, you must, you cannot have Christ. If you must have the world, you cannot have Jesus. Jesus says next, and these words I I find to be very troubling and tragic. I tell you, he says, I tell you, this is true. It will happen. I tell you. In that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Here's a very clear contrast. On that great day there will be salvation for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust in Him, 
who treasure Him above all else. And there will be judgment for those who love the things of this world. And one of the great tragedies that I guess we, we would, if we had our choice, you know, this is the kind of thing that we would just shut out of our minds and, and suppress. But one of the great tragedies is that those who are together in life, who are so close in life, many for whom this is true, many who are close in this life will be separated once and for all on the day of Christ, never to see or to be with one another again. It will happen for family members, loved ones, lifelong friends. The one thing that this tells you is that all must trust in Jesus. Specifically, each must trust in Jesus. You, each, must trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot depend on your closeness to a person of faith to, through them, be united. Because you are united with them in life does not mean you are united to Christ. Being united to a person of faith in Jesus does not unite you to Jesus. You must have your faith in Christ. You must know Him yourself. You from the heart must cling to Him yourself. You must do this or you will be lost. You must hope in Jesus. So, you cannot depend on the faith of your parents. You cannot depend on the faith of your church. You can't count their faith as your faith. Each one must for themselves, from the heart, trust in Christ. It's the only hope. Even if we feel that our, our grip is slipping, yet we we cling to Christ. Truly, He holds on to us. But I want you to understand that all those who trust in Him will love Him. Those who trust in Him by the Spirit will love Him by the Spirit and by the Spirit treasure Him above the things of this world. Because it's in Jesus that we see that glory that surpasses all the other glories. Are our hearts tempted by the world? Do we get drawn in, compelled by the things of this world because they're beautiful, they're nice? There's a lot of cool stuff out there. But His is the glory and the beauty and the goodness that surpasses all other glories. It's in His face and His face alone that we see the glory of God shine. He is the face of God. And He has compelled us to trust in Him and to treasure Him above all the world. The last thing we have in verse 37, you may notice that there is no verse 36. Um, and that's because things have changed. Our understanding of manuscripts and such has changed since the 1600s and earlier when verses were compiled. So verse 37 That means that verse 36 is not in the oldest, most reliable manuscripts. Verse 37, And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So here, what are they asking about? Who who are they asking about? I think the natural inquiry would be, Where are they taken? 
right? Not where are they left. Left means they're here on the earth. And I think left alive. They want to know where are they taken. That's what their question is about. And so Jesus answers with this, this proverb, this, this picture. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So the, the take, so I know that this passage may conjure up pictures of the rapture, particularly this word taken. But, uh, you look at Luke 18 carefully and note the parallels and such, what their natural inquiry would be and how Jesus answers. You compare this to the parallel passage in Matthew 24. I think they're asking about the taken. So Jesus is not talking about the, the rapture of the saints in this passage. He's talking about those who are swept away by judgment, who, who lose everything. Everything gets taken. That's what they didn't want. They didn't want anything taken from them. They wanted to hold on to everything. Like Jesus says, you know, they wanted to preserve their lives. But in the end, they lose not only the things that they love, but they lose themselves. They are taken. Where, where the corpse is, there the vultures will, will gather. They are taken to death. Final, irreversible, and everlasting destruction. It's those who hope in Jesus, who did not count their lives as precious to themselves, who are left, that is, they are left to experience eternally the kingdom of God come from heaven, established on the earth made new. If you lost everything in this world today, everything, would you still have your first love? If Jesus returns this day, if the kingdom came down today, would your hopes be crushed because the present form of this world passes away? Or would your hope be fulfilled because Jesus has come? Where is your heart? And where do your hopes lie? What do you treasure above all things? Where do you see the glory? Where? Is it in the face of Christ? Then keep looking to Him. And never take your eyes off. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's not in our power to see the light of Your glory shining in the face of Jesus. And it's not in our power, even though we have seen Your glory in Jesus Christ, to keep our eyes there. Lord, we we all feel within our hearts the distractions of this world. We hear the call of the world. We hear the promises. And although the promises have again and again in our experience proved to be empty, our hearts are so drawn in by the things of this world. Lord, all will be lost. And I pray that we would not conform to the idolatry of this age. Lord, we know we're not better than the world. But we have a better better God. A better hope and a better treasure. So Lord, I pray that You would, in all of our buying and selling, planting and building up in this world, 
I pray that Jesus would yet remain the great hope of our hearts and our very first love. This will, our prayer will be answered if you will for this give to us your Holy Spirit. And I believe with all my heart you will. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen.